Welcome to Dismantle Racism, where our goal is to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism and create a world where racial equity is the norm. I'm your host, the Reverend Dr. TLC. We are going to be talking about the education of Black and Brown communities. And as always, I want to begin the show by inviting us into a sacred time where we do some breathing just to calm us as we have this discussion on race, which can sometimes create a bit of anxiety in folks and unease. And so I just want us to breathe. And so if you will, take a deep breath in. And breathe in, I am enough. And breathe out any words that have hurt you in the past. Breathe in acceptance. Breathe out ignorance. Take a deep breath in and breathe in faith. Breathe out doubt. Breathe in hope and breathe out hopelessness. Now I want you to take a really big breath in and I want you to breathe in. I am power, strength, and love. And this time I want you to breathe out other people's expectations of who they believe you should be. Ah, Take a very deep breath in and sigh it out. Educational disparities are not a surprise to any of our listeners, I'm sure. We've seen the data as it relates to Black and Brown students and the disparities that exist between white students. What we might be surprised about are some of the obstacles that many of our Black and Brown students face that help to explain some of the educational disparities that exist. So not only do we take a look at underfunded schools and some teachers and administrators' poor understanding of what it means to educate Black, Indigenous, people of color. But we must also take a look at the day-to-day assault and microaggressions that come from the school system itself. The very things that people are doing that they are unaware of that they're doing that perpetuate racism. And it also contributes to a student's ability to find themselves as being worthy of the education, or perhaps believing that they could go on to have something greater in life than they have. Because you see, education isn't just about what we learn in school. But as a psychologist, I can tell you what we say to our students matters, and it impacts their ability to learn. And it also gives them a sense of whether they can achieve or not achieve. So it's very complex. So my guest today will share a bit of her experiences as a child growing up, but also she will share some of her experiences as she sought to become a tenured professor. Because the problems that we experience in elementary school, middle school, high school, they're there in college as well. And even as we engage in our work in the academy for people of color. So I'm delighted today to have Dr. Marilyn Easter as my guest, Dr. E, as she has known to some. She is a professor in the Marketing and Business Analytics Department in the College of Business at San Jose State University. She has a plethora of awards and honors, and I'm not going to go through and read them all to you, but I invite you to look her up after this show. But one thing I do want to mention is that she is the founder of the Goal Program. That's Generation of Aspirational Leaders, which is designed to build community, curriculum, and career 
for the underrepresented minority students at SJSU. And today she is going to be sharing so many things with us that I'm sure are related to her goal programming. May not talk about that in particular, but related to underrepresented students. How do we educate students? How do we educate not just based on academics, but educate in a way that we inspire them to greatness? I also want to share with you that she is the author of Resilience, Bravery in the Face of Racism, Corruption, and Privilege in the Halls of the Academy. Dr. E, welcome, welcome, welcome to the show today. I'm so delighted to have you with me. Thank you. So Dr. E, I always love to start my show out talking about our connections with the sacred, because for me, I believe that there are three important important relationships, the one that we have with the sacred, the one we have with ourselves, and the one that we have with other people. And I define our ability to get to that point of greatness is to be able to tap into our sacred intelligence. And so for me, that begins with this relationship with the sacred. Can you tell me a bit about your relationship with the sacred, however you define that? how that sacred might ground you in the work that you do. Thank you so much uh, for the question. And I'll just say this is that my strong belief in God that was instilled in me as a child still lives within me as an adult. And if it wasn't for that belief that I have um, in God and that belief in myself, and that is uh, my mother always told me, you know, to, uh, to pray and, and to know why I'm praying and not to pray for things, but to pray for strength, to mm-hmm. pray that when I go through uh, trials and tribulations in life, that I'm not alone. If she's not there or other people aren't there, I'm not alone, that there is something in me. And that is my God that will steer me down the right path. And that's something that I've never parted from um, in my life. And that sacred place is where I go every single day in the morning, noon and night throughout the day. If I'm, uh, if I'm driving in my car and I'm sitting at a stoplight, I'm meditating, I'm praying because I realize that in my skin, things are not going to be as easy as it may be for someone else. And so I, I always defer to my sacred. And one last thing about that, before I leave my house, I pray with my husband. And we have a a little altar, and then we pray, we read scriptures to get us boosted and ready to deal with this world because we don't know what we're going to walk into, what we're going to walk into once we leave our house. And so Mm -hmm. that's what we do on a day-to-day basis um, Mm -hmm. as far as a family. Mm, Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. But as you were talking, what it made me think about is... um, The work that we do, because you say in the skin that you're in, and I think about the work that that, you know, culturally and as African-Americans that we've done around dismantling racism for many of us, that backdrop has been that sacred connection. And when you think about historically the civil rights movement, it started out of churches. You know, we would go to those church places and hold meetings. And that's why we knew some of the things that were going to happen in the community before anybody else did. So I appreciate you, you know, talking about your grounding in that um, and how it helps you to get through some of those experiences that I know that you've had racially, because, um, you know, we've had an opportunity to kind of talk about those things. So I'd like to, to kind of move into that just a little bit. Um, you know, your book, Resilience, is a wonderful, wonderful book. And you tell the story of a character named Emma. And you highlight Emma's journey, really from the age of five on up. Situate your book for us. Help us to understand the context of the book. Okay. Well, you know, despite you mentioned uh, about the civil civil rights movement. But despite the civil rights movement and the emancipation of the slaves back in the 1800s or whatever, we're still living in 
similar conditions back from back then simply because racism still exists in the hearts and the habits of individuals and they're also seen in the institutions. So when I wrote the book, uh, Resilience, Racism, uh, uh, Resilience, Bravery in the Face of uh, Racism, Corruption, and, uh, and Privilege in the Halls of Academia, I wrote it with the lenses of the Emmas out there. There are people like Emma that have had experiences as a little girl where she is going to kindergarten and she's thinking that, you know, she's the only little black girl in the classroom and there's a black boy in the classroom, but it's all these white kids in the class. And there's Emma thinking that I want to do like the other kids. And when it's time to play the musical instrument that most kindergartners play or uh, indulge in, Emma is passed over time and time and time again by her car, her kindergarten teacher. And when Emma goes to the teacher and she, you know, she raises her hand like, I want to play, I want to play an instrument, just give me anything. And there's a plea in her heart, just pick me one time and I'd be happy. The teacher never did. And so when Emma goes to the teacher and then asks the teacher, well, you know, I want to play an instrument. And by the way, I want to be a teacher just like you, because Emma saw that the teacher was having a lot of fun. And so were the kids. The teacher told her, well, I'm sorry, but people like you can't be teachers. And so Emma starts out as a five-year-old having problems, but she does not recognize race. It's because that's not on her radar at the time. Emma later, as she grows up, she ends up in jail. And the reasons why Emma ends up in jail is that her mother was suffering from a debilitating uh, headache. Uh, She later uh, found that she had a uh, blood clot in her brain, but she was suffering from a debilitating headache. The police officers came to the mother's house and had questioned her because a car was involved in an accident. The, The police officers then asked her to come downtown so they can do some questioning. And so Emma escorts her mother downtown, but because her mother wasn't walking fast enough when they were standing in front of the elevator getting ready to go in, a police officer pushes her, shoves her to the ground, the mother screams, and Emma does something. She kicks the officer and ends up in jail. And so that's another incident that happened to Emma. And uh, the other was by the time she goes to high school, she was yanked out of her black school. This is the busing time where she's yanked out of a black school and now she's being integrated into a white school. And the kids would stand around like, you don't belong here. And the counselors would tell her, you don't belong in college either. So find something else to do with your life. And so it just time after time again. Yes. And, 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 what you're saying to me is that you, you've gone from her five-year-old to really to her high school, that when our kids are educated, they start getting the message very early on that you're different, you're the other, and that some things you can have and other things you cannot. You can sit here in this classroom, but you will never be one of us. You will never be one of the people who will go to the next level. Um, and so and there and so you talked about some really obvious ways for that to happen, but there are also subtle ways as well. And I do want to encourage people to get your book because you're only telling us a, a little bit of it. And so so we're thankful for that. But we actually have to take a really quick break. And so we will be right back with our guest today, Dr. E, Dr. Marilyn Easter. I'm your host at Dismantle Racism. We'll be right back. Have you ever thought of reinventing yourself? Are you looking to create a new life's journey? Hi, I'm Kevin Barbaro, host of Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, live, 8 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live to hear me and my guests from a variety of different backgrounds. As a former college coach and a current full-time actor and owner of multiple companies, my show is as eclectic as my life. That's Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, 8 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you interested in having a better relationship with yourself, others, and God? Greetings. I'm your host, Dr. George Andow, for the show, A Journey Through Into Awareness. On my show, we journey into the awareness 
that the mind of God is the true seat of our personal consciousness. We join together each Monday at 7 p.m. So tune in on Talk Radio NYC. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Dr. E, as you were talking, um, welcome back, everybody. Um, as you were talking about the incidents you describe of Emma from a five-year-old to a high school student, I actually thought of some incidents that have happened with my children. I thought of incidents that happened when I also worked in a public school system. And I know from reading the book, one of the things that Emma was told when she was getting ready to go to college, that she wasn't college material. And I remember that happening to a high school student in the school that I worked with when I, you know, saw her one day and I asked why she was walking the halls. And and I said, you should be in class learning. And she said, my teacher said I wasn't college material. Talk to me about your um, experiences perhaps with some of the students or as you wrote about Emma, what does that do to a child when they hear you're not college material and how do they get past it? You know, it's a, it's a dream crusher for a, uh, a teacher or a professor uh, to tell a child that you're not college material when in fact when the child's at home, mom and dad or grandma, grandpa is saying, we want you to go to college. You'll be the first one to go to college. You'll make us proud. So there's a tremendous amount of stress that's placed on a child when you have family that's encouraging you. And yet you walk into a, uh, a building or an institution or a classroom where you're being discouraged the whole time. It's a dream crusher, a dream killer. Let me say this. I've had so many students, I've been teaching for 37 years, and I, if I had a penny for every student that's come into my office, a black student, close the door and just bawl, just, just in tears, saying, I can't do this, I, there's no way I can get through this, it's because they are dealing with the racism, whether it's, it's implicit, whether it's explicit, whether it is subtle. I mean, they are picking up on all these things and they're treated just like Emma was treated. But unlike Emma, when she was young, she didn't know the difference of anything. She's just still going going along and, and someone else has to tell her what she's experiencing. But these kids that I deal with, they know what they're experiencing and then they find themselves coming to me for advice, that motherly advice or that auntie advice or whatever. And I have to always tell them the positive things, but I never tell them, I too know what you're going through because I am going through the same thing, but at a different level as a professor. Mm. And that's, that, that is um, really powerful. What you're saying in terms of the students finding someone who looks like them, that they're able to have a conversation with. But I, I want to just go back to something a little bit in terms of you made a statement that they are experiencing racism, subtle racism, and maybe some overt. Could you talk a little bit 
about or give us some examples of the microaggressions that students experience in class, because sometimes they may own some of this thing if it's about their their inability to do something. They may think, oh, I'm not good enough, like you just said. So talk to us about the microaggressions, because I would imagine that some of our listeners are unaware of some of the things that they do or say that contribute to students feeling less than. Uh, Some of the microaggressions um, can be where students are positioned in the classroom. Like there are some professors that will have the black students or students of color sit in the back. It's because there's this whole idea that, well, they don't want to really be here anyway. So let's just reserve the front seats for certain students. And I've seen that happen. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this. Others would be students raising their hands and not getting called in. It's because Mm -hmm. if you raise your hand, that is an indicator that, you know, you got a problem. You know, you're just going to ask some dumb question or whatever it may be, as opposed to that student has something to contribute to the conversation within the classroom. Or it could be something as um, as uh, uh, mundane as a professor uh, calling on a, a black student, for example, knowing that he or she may not have the answer to a question that uh, that they're that they're posing, and that's to kind of wake that student up, or either to uh, make the student feel like, hey, you know what, you should have read that that chapter because that leads into something more aggressive or more uh, out there or whatever. So I've seen so much happen, but I think more importantly, when our uh, students of color contacts, just say a white professor and the white professor doesn't have time to talk to them. And I've heard these kinds of complaints over and over and over. And I'll tell you, I've had students taking uh, statistics classes, for example. Now, I'm not a, a stats professor, but they come to me asking me to help them solve their problems. And I'm like, no, that's not in my lane. I don't want to go there. And I wonder and say, well, why can't you go to your professor? Well, my professor is always busy. Or, well, my professor says he doesn't have time or she doesn't have time. Those are microaggressions that I see that, that screams at me. But the students really don't know what they're dealing with sometimes. And what's really sad is that the pre- professor may not know what they're doing. Well, you, when you say they may not know what they're doing, you mean they may not be aware that they are? They may, uh, be, may not be aware that what they're doing is uh, micro-aggression uh, uh, related. Yes. Okay. And, and I was actually... Yeah, I'm sorry. I was I was thinking that when you were talking that uh, about this unintentional racism that happens, and that's because of uh, implicit biases. So a person may not realize I'm not calling on you because you know uh, you're black, but it's just what what happens. Um, when we talked, you know, prior to the show, and you've kind of hinted at it a little bit about these first-generation students. So there's already something that comes with being a first-generation student for some students who are Black and Brown. Talk to me a little bit about that first-generation student coupled with the racism. What are some of their experiences based on your uh, years of teaching? Okay, uh, many students may not have... Uh, families that uh, can help them do the work in college. And so there's uh, there's a child going to college and, you know, the first one going to college, but mom, dad, grandma, whoever lives in that household who may be in that household may not have a clue as to what they need to do to succeed. And so they're depending on a system to help their black child make it through the system, but the system it's racist. Mm-hmm. I can't call it anything else but what I see. And as a result of that, the child goes to school looking for someone to help him or her through the process, and it's not there. 
One thing that I have found, uh, there, uh, there's been so many students saying, well, my, my mom's in, in prison or my dad's in prison or uh, my mom is, has passed away and, I, and I'm taking care of uh, my grandmother and I'm working, I'm doing all these things. And uh, there's some students that, are, uh, that have issues with food. They, it's like the food, it's just not there. And so they come into the classroom. They just say they come into my class and I'm expecting them to, to behave a certain way and to really get the material. But if their stomach is, is, uh, is, is screaming, I'm hungry, or if they're thinking about what they got to do to take care of grandma that needs that insulin shot as soon as they get out of class or whatever, these are burden kinds of things that the students have to deal with when they're in the classroom. And if they're dealing with a professor that doesn't care or doesn't know anything about the first generation students, then what will happen uh, the students will seek out people like me. I, I deal with all sorts of students who come to me. I said, it looks like I have social worker written on my chest or my back. It's because they tell me all of their issues and their problems. And then I always feel like there's something I got to do about that, which is why I created the GOAL program, Generation of Aspirational Leaders. And I wanted to instill value in the underrepresented students to let them know that they can too do it. If I can do it, they can too. And mm-hmm. Emma's story, there's a lot of Emma's out there, but Emma, she was in jail, so she could relate to the people being falsely accused or being in jail. Uh, Emma, was there were things taken away from her, and so Emma can relate to all of or many of the problems that these students face, but she can more, uh, she can more so relate to the racism mm-hmm. that she faced throughout mm-hmm. her career all the way to becoming a full professor. She can relate to all of that. And I share a lot of what Emma has experienced. I have seen and have experienced many of the same things. Well, the book is fantastic for like painting a really good picture of how racism shows up, you know, on a day-to-day basis. And you have just said so much in those few minutes of talking about what first-generation students experience and also first-generation students who are Black and Brown, the extra things that they experience. From my years in a high school and also teaching at the college level, I know that some of these things, um, you know, they, they go from high school to college even. And when teachers don't pay attention to them in high school, some kids don't end up going to college or when they get to college, they are still functioning almost at that um, same rate. Academically, they may be doing well. Some of the students anyway, academically may be doing well, but still dealing with some of those um, issues that you've mentioned. We do have to take another break. And when we come back, we will wrap that um, section up because I really want to hear about some of your own obstacles, particularly as it relates to um, your road to becoming a tenured professor. So we will be right back with Dr. Marilyn Easter. I'm your host, Reverend Dr. TLC. This is Dismantle Racism. Do you feel uninformed about menopause and how it impacts on your life? Hi, I'm Pat Duckworth, women's health strategist and host of the Hot Women Rock radio show, empowering women leaders at menopause. Join me every Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. UK Time on talkradio.nyc for interviews with inspirational women who will share their top tips to rock your world. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. 
on talkradio.nyc. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. We're back with Dismantle Racism. Today's guest is Dr. Marilyn Easter. Dr. E, one of the other pieces that I thought about as you were talking about what some students of color experience, I have seen our Black and Brown students just passed along as well in high school or or middle school sometimes. And some of those students end up uh, getting to college. And then they're struggling with writing. Um, And part of that, I believe, is due to racism because uh, oftentimes people think that this is all that they're capable of. They are not raising uh, the expectations of those students. And they're also not giving them the services that they need. So what has been your experience as it relates to that? Writing is just one example. And I want to be very clear that we're not talking about every black and brown student. So we're making some general statements based on what we're talking about on today's show. We know that many of our students are uh, stellar Students, So we're not saying that even those who might struggle a little bit in school as first generation students or who are dealing with racism, they're still stellar students. So I want to be very clear that we're not making that statement, nor is this a place where we are beating up on teachers. What we're trying to do with this show is to show some of the subtle ways in which uh, racism uh, impacts students and the subtle ways in which people engage in racism and aren't aware of it. But uh, if you could just speak to that a little bit about what you see with some of your students. Okay, thank you. I'd like to preface this by saying that I will be speaking from um, a college of business point of view, because I've always worked in colleges of business. So it, it brings in a different type of student that I cannot infer on all the other uh, colleges, social science, engineering, uh, you name it, they're out there, nursing. I won't be speaking about that because I haven't had those experiences. But in my 37 years of teaching, I've seen a lot of students come to the College of Business and the expectation is low for them And the, as far as succeeding. And the reasons why I say this, I have seen many, many times when I'm sitting in a meeting, a college-wide meeting, and I'm talking about years of experience of doing this, where someone will say, well, we know that uh, Black people operate on CP time. Now, hearing that, I'm like, first of all, I want to like stop. It's like, excuse me, what do you mean by that? But when they're talking among themselves, I'm invisible in in a meeting like that. They don't even see me, but I'm ingesting all of this, saying, well, if they're saying things like that, and I'm sitting there and hearing this, what are they doing with those students? And so mm-hmm. I learned that uh, oftentimes uh, many of my own colleagues just have such a low expectation for the uh, the people of color. And I'm talking specifically about the black and brown students that we're probably not going to succeed in the first place. And that's a real mm-hmm. problem that the rhetoric that I hear among my colleagues, and I'm not ashamed to say that simply because it's real, which is why I stick to it and I try to do everything I can to point it out, 
call it out, and then do something about it and let the students know one thing. There are resources on campus. As soon as you come to campus, if you're a first year, a first gen student, you, you capture those resources. There's a program called EOP, Educational Opportunity Program. Uh, so many students can benefit by that. And there's so many resources they offer students. And I tell them, Take advantage of the resources. You want to succeed. You want to, you want to succeed for yourself, your family, do it. And forget about what you're not getting in the classroom. You have to demand what you want and you got to take what you want. And you have to be very assertive about it. It's because I work at an institution where uh, there's over 37,000 students on that campus. And wow. I'll tell you, when it comes down to it, our black and brown students, they get lost in the mix. There's not many of our students on the campus. So we have to direct the students to where they need to go to get the help. But more importantly, the students have to realize if you want it, you got to go after it. No one's going to hand it to you. Yeah, I so appreciate you saying that. And so I hope for our listeners today that you will take this advice. And uh, if you have a student who's cool that, that they will also take the advice and go and get the help they need. Now, I want to shift us just a little bit because Emma's story is about this tenure track. And I want to make sure that we have time to discuss it. Now, you are the first and only Black full professor in the college in 97 years. That is phenomenal that you are. And so I know that the the tenure track was not easy for you. So if you could speak to um, one, speak to what your process was like. And then the second thing is, what is that like for you to be the first and only? Now, we might end up only having time for one question before the break, but I want to put it there so we can make sure that we address both of those things. Okay. I want to uh, just uh, clarify one thing. I'm the first and only Black female professor. There was one black male professor, but there's two of us now. Um, And he's gone. He he retired. But only two black professors in 97 plus years. That's appalling. And Mm. so it was not easy for me, just like it wasn't easy for Emma. I'll give you an example of um, myself, for example. When I went up for tenure, and tenure is a five-year process where you get your dossier together and you, you do whatever you need to do to show that you're worthy of tenure and that you're stellar in every way. For myself, I, um, I uh, went up for early tenure because I had seven publications and, um, and I had stellar uh, community work. I had stellar teaching evaluations. And when I, I went to a back-to-school party, and I saw all these people there that were going to be on the tenure committee, and I walked up to one of the uh, guys, and I said, I'm going to throw in my application for tenure this fall. I'm ready to go. And he looked at me, and he said, I would not vote for you to have tenure under no circumstances. Now, we're talking about never looked at my work. He just told me, point blank, I will not vote for your tenure. Now, that's my experience. Now, let's talk about Emma. Emma is denied uh, tenure. And by the time she was denied tenure, she goes to campus and she looks for her dossier so she can collect them and maybe go back up the next year uh, for tenure. But then she reads in her dossier Uh, Well, she looks in her dossier and she noticed a lot of pages missing and she counts the number of pages missing because she paginated her entire uh, portfolio. There was probably a thousand pages worth of documents and she was missing a significant number of pages. They were just gone. And then other aspects in her dossier, she noticed they were just moved around in different places. But there was one place in her dossier that she read um, and that she was actually taken aback. And that is, it said to, in her dossier, it said, it is an anomaly for, uh, for someone to get this, these many publications. She must be sleeping with the editorial board. Ha ha. That person wrote it in her dossier and erased it, but the imprint of what was written was there. 
And when Emma saw that, she was blown away. It's like, how dare these people? Who am I dealing with? How dare these people think of me in that way? And so Emma collects all of her work and she realizes that she's dealing with something more greater than just a bunch of people that are just mean spirited. Could it be racism? Could it be something else? And so those were Emma's experiences. And it's quite sad is because these kinds of things happen to so many different uh, women of color, but particularly black women. There's only 5.5% of all professors in the nation are black. And then you can dwindle that down and say how many are tenure, how many are, are full professors or whatever. Then it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So Emily is a unicorn to be able to, to make it through the trajectory of something that was so abusive. It, working at a job should not ever be abusive and tenure should not be abusive. Yeah. So, you know, I so appreciate your book because there, there are a number of Emma's out there based on her experience of what happened to her. But in terms of being tenured, I, I certainly understand what you're talking about. And so um, I, I want our listeners to really get the fact that when a person says to you, just simply by looking at you based on the color of your skin, that I would never vote for you. There was nothing else, according to what you are saying, that would be an indicator of why he wouldn't vote for you. And I know from reading the story of Emma and also because I know lots and lots and lots of other professors, uh, black professors, that there are roadblocks that are put in the way that are not put in the way of folks who are white. And one thing that you did not say, but I happen to know because I've talked to you about this is that when you I believe you didn't get your tenure your first time around. And you just mentioned that you went up early. What's important for our audience to know is that you had been a tenured professor somewhere else before. So it wasn't just that you were going up early. Yes, you were brilliant. And you had your seven articles and you had all of these other things that qualified you. So you had that to qualify you. But you also came in having been a tenured professor. And usually it should sort of uh, make the road a little less painful for you. Right. Well, you know, what's interesting is that if, if I, if Emma would just have looked around and to see that there was no one looking like her, if I would have just paid attention to say, I'm the first and only black female professor, then that should have been the indicator well, why? Is it because I'm brilliant and I and they gave me this job? No, it wasn't. It's because others may have come before me, but they were discouraged and they just got the message, just like Anna Nicole uh, uh, Anna Nicole Jones. She said, "I am not going to stay at UNC. I'm going to go over to Howard University, where I am appreciated." Mm-hmm. So I never got that message, and I never got had the opportunity. I was like that first generation who just uh, going into the institutions thinking that they're going to take care of me and I'm going to do everything they tell me to do. Well, you got to have more than just hope. Yes. Yes. Well, listen, we do have to take another quick break uh, already. We're going to be back with Dr. Marilyn Easter. This is Dismantle Racism. I'm your host, the Reverend Dr. TLC. We'll be right back about the conversation around racism? Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges 
business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. We are back with Dismantle Racism. I'm your host, Reverend Dr. TLC, Dr. Marilyn Easter. We are so engrossed in this conversation. There's so much more that we could talk about, but I want to just ask you, I want to go back to something that you said, which was, I should have taken a look around to see that there were no other people who look like me. And I remember when I was in graduate school asking a professor, why aren't there any other Black professors here or people of color? Why are all the professors white? And he said, because uh, we just don't have a good pool of applicants. And the ones that uh, we do have, they go to other schools. They go to some of the top schools. Well, that in and of itself is a racist statement. And and by top, I mean like the 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 Big Ten sort of school because certainly the school was a good school, but he's saying that the 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 best and the brightest only want to go to some of those top ten schools. Well, that's a racist statement because what it's actually saying is there aren't enough of you out there who are qualified. But I believe that that's re- related to our implicit biases or their implicit biases in terms of. Do we meet the standard? Do we qualify? And so I appreciate you saying that you as a professor should have looked around. But I think it's also important that those who are hiring, I think in the academy, if 90% or 95 or 97% of your faculty are white professors, what are you not doing to be able to recruit black and brown candidates? Do you want to say a little bit more about that? I think it's just rhetoric. Um, I have been in this business long enough and I've heard the same thing. We can't find anyone. We so value you, Marilyn Easter, but I never felt value. Mm. And to say, well, you value me, but where's the beef? I don't see any evidence of feeling valued or even anyone uh, going out of their way to even invite me to lunches or anything else. When I see a group of faculty getting together and like going to the ballpark or going for lunch. And then it's like, as they're stepping in the elevator, Oh, by the way, you want to come with us? Well, that right there, you know, that sends a lot of messages. And so to be excluded all the time. uh, And yet you, um, I hear the rhetoric, all the time. We're, we're looking, we're looking high and low. I have been in situations where I would bring people on campus and bring them in the boardroom, so to speak. And they would still say, we, we just can't find anyone. We can't 
this area in, in the Bay Area is so expensive and they don't want to come here. Well, excuse me, what are you doing to recruit? So I just see this in this is year, this is 2021. 20, Show me the data. Show me what you're really doing. What's the intentional efforts that you're doing? Are you going to the HBCUs and recruiting? Are you going to the, uh, the various um, uh, uh, conferences that you know that Black folks go to to recruit? No, you're not. I've offered many times to go. And it's like, well, we don't have the funding. Well, so you really value us, but you don't have the funding? I'll mm-hmm. just say this. It's taken me 20 years just to get on the recruiting committee because I was denied getting on that committee for 20 years straight. Wow. And I, but I would not stop fighting to get on the committee. It's because, uh, you know, what can I say? It, it, I don't want to leave a legacy where I'm currently teaching to say I didn't try. I want to give it my very best shot. And so it took 20 years of getting denied of being on recruiting committees. That's the the most important committee one can get on. And I said, if you really value people that look like me, then I need to be on these committees. And I was on the committee for the last two years. I've been there for 22 years. And I'm happy to say that got got some black folks in there. Uh, that's coming on board. And so I'm super happy about that. But the number one thing is that you got to look around and you have to accept what you don't see. What you don't see tells a lot. And then you have to question, question, question. And of course, people will deny and they'll tell you how much they value you and how important you are and how much they love you. But you got to say, okay, show me. Well, it sounds like to me too, when 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 you're talking about this, Black and brown people who are isolated like that on campuses need such support. I mean, amazing support. You know, I, I do want to just um, say this because you mentioned they don't go to HBCUs to recruit. I believe that's because a lot of times some of those places don't value the HBCUs because they think that the education is not as stellar. And having gone to Howard University, I can tell you that my education is stellar. Uh, I can compete with anybody. So uh, if anything, I think there's some ways in which they push me uh, a little bit harder. And the one thing that you don't have to deal with at an HBCU is that I don't have to deal with the racism piece so that I could, I could focus mm-hmm. on my academics. And so I, one of the things that I've mentioned in my book that I'm writing uh, for corporations and CEOs is that you've got to be able to recruit or, or any entrepreneur uh, in business, you've got to be able to recruit where the people are. So I want to just thank you for, for sharing your experience with us today. I know we actually only, there's just the tip of the iceberg. And so, so we, we only have a few more minutes. So I want to just ask you one uh, final question before we do have to end. And, and that is what advice would you give to, um, you know, professors and teachers to uplift students? Uh, To look around the world right now and see that there's so much negativity and, and find a way to have a positive imprint on all students, not just some students, but all students. What can, we need to get back to the basics and do what we have pledged that we wanted to do, and that's to educate our students and to not leave any students behind. So when a professor sees a student that appears to be lost or disengaged, talk to that uh, student and make that student realize that he or she is valued. Mm, thank you. Thank you. And any any parting words for parents out there whose students might be at a PWI and um, they are just needing some extra support? Just to keep encouraging your, your, uh, your uh, child, let him or her know that they can do it. They can, they can succeed. Keep them on the right path. Do whatever you can to let them know that you're going to be there for them, whether you have the tools, the instruments, or whatever it may be, but guide them. Just tell them. Talk to your counselors. Talk to your your teachers. Don't be afraid to talk to your uh, professors. Get out there and show your worth, and Mm -hmm. don't depend on someone to come and hand it to you. Demand 
what it is that you need to succeed. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that. Ah, Dr. Marilyn Easter, thank you so much for joining me today on the show. How can people get a copy of your book? They can actually go online to Amazon. Uh, The book is right there in Amazon, ready to go. Also to Square, if they want a signature copy, they can go to square.com and they can also get a signature copy. And so those are the two places to get, uh, get a hold of the book. And, and the name of the book again is? The book is called Resilience, Bravery in the, in the Face of Racism, Corruption, and Privilege in the Halls of Academia. I don't know if you can see that. Thank you. Well, well, for our listeners on the radio, nope, they they can't see it, but those who are watching live can. So I am so delighted. I want to thank you all for uh, joining us today on the show. If you would like to know more about the programs I offer on dismantling racism, please do visit my site at sacredintelligence.com. I want to invite you to stay tuned for the Conscious Consultant Hour with Sam Leibowitz, which is coming up where Sam talks with his guests and he walks them through um, having a life of joy and ease. And we all would love to have that. Thank you so much for your time uh, with us, Dr. Easter. And thank you for listening. This is Dismantle Racism. I'm your host, the Reverend Dr. TLC. Be well, be encouraged, and be blessed. Thank you for having me. Welcome. that nearly one in five adults in the U.S. battles mental illness? Hi, my name is Albert Dabba. I'm the host of the show Extra Innings. Extra Innings, I discuss the topics of wellness, mental health, and the experience of surviving multiple suicides within my family. Listen live every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern to Extra Innings for discussions with sports figures, artists, mental health professionals, and many others. That's Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Post-COVID world, you may have many unanswered questions regarding your health. Are you looking to live a healthier lifestyle? Do you have a desire to learn more about mental health and enhance your quality of life? Or do you just want to participate in self-understanding and awareness? I'm Frank R. Harrison, host of Frank About Health, and each Thursday, I will tackle these questions and work to enlighten you. Tune in every Thursday at 5 p.m. on talkradio.nyc, and I will be Frank About Health to advocate for all of us. love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you passionate about the conversation around racism? Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Have you ever thought of reinventing yourself? Are you looking to create a new life's journey? Hi, I'm Kevin Barbaro, host of Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, 5, 8 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live to hear me and my guests from a variety of different backgrounds. As a former college coach and a current full-time actor and owner of multiple companies, my show is as eclectic as my life. That's Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, 8 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to 
Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower.